0: Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship.
1: Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College.
0: So let's enjoy our second meal together, John, shall we? And, oh, we shall. Uh, okay. Let's begin with the prayer that has become traditional. Here, our second podcast. Let's pray together. The eyes of all look to you, O Lord, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hands and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Amen. Amen. So, John, what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to talk about narrative narrative. Can you – <laughs> should we define our term? I think we
1: should. Okay. Uh, you go first. So I would categorize anything that has a sequence of events is a narrative. Sure. So like anything, where, anything where you, you follow along some length of time okay. a certain series of happenings is, is, a, is a narrative. Okay. Which so is a very broad definition, but I think it's appropriate.
0: Things happen in time, and there's causality between events, and this is a story. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, Going to, you know, we, we talk in stories all right, the time. Right. So
0: We'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the, the little line from, I think his name was E.M. Foster. Um, the queen died and the king died. Those are facts. The queen died and the king died of a broken heart. That's the story. Yeah. But it tells you how compact this can really be. Yeah. Um, So anyway, I, um, boy, I bumped into a stat uh, just the other day that someone had said that 75% of the Bible takes a narrative form. And, of course, uh, I don't know what you think, John. The first thing that jumped into my head is, well, what are we leaving out? What do we think is not narrative in the Bible? Yeah,
1: especially if we're uh, considering our definition as being some sort of sequence of, of things happening, what what does not fall into that category?
0: Yeah, right. And, of course, what came to mind, um, genealogy, for example. Is genealogy somehow not a narrative, or is this a really compact form of narrative? I, th- if, I think it th- would. You'd name, have to. Every name in the list is a story waiting to be unfolded, not all of them, but mm-hmm. built into yeah. the genealogy. So... I was thinking, even you know, the epistles. You could say, well, those aren't stories; those are letters that the apostles wrote based on their experience of Jesus. But yeah. they're stories in disguise too, aren't they? Like, yeah, especially man.
1: when you consider the whole book in context. Oh, sure. Is it's it's all his story? As I mean, I remember that even from like grade school. That's how they Correct. they framed it, and that was even before I had specific interest in mm-hmm. narrative form in in general. So, mm-hmm. I. Th- you could maybe make an argument that if you took a, a verse in Solidarity, that it might not carry inside it a narrative. But if you consider it in context, I, I think it would be hard to divorce any any part of scripture from being a part of a sequence of events.
0: Yeah,
1: I, d- I don't think that it would I don't think that that's I don't know why you would want to do that. I mm-hmm. don't know what the argument would be mm-hmm. or the motive behind that would be, but all of it all of it comes together to to tell us the sure. story of, sure. of Christ on the cross and
0: I mean the least you could say is that the hidden within the epistle letter is a man writing to Christians he was longing to meet about the experiences that he had, and mm-hmm. um you know you could say that. Meeting somebody in the hallway and they say hi to you, and you say hi back, it doesn't seem like a narrative, but even that, the theory goes, is experienced as an episode. Yeah,
1: it it implies that there are other things happening. Absolutely. Yeah, so.
0: So, John, we talked about just having an episode that might become two or three about um, narrative and. You know, no you know, pun
1: intended. Gr- yeah,
0: no, none, none. <laughs> Grounding this in the scriptures, and I think there was a story that just came right to mind for you as a place to start.
1: Yeah, so one of my my favorite stories is um from the old testament. Um and it's the Elijah at Dauphin. Mm-hmm. And so basically what's happening is the Israelites are being surrounded. Is is it the Israelites? I'm not sure. Uh, I yeah, the king of Israel. Yep. So they're being surrounded by by an enemy. And the thing that I remember specifically is that one of Elisha's um, servants comes out and realizes that they're surrounded and says, oh, what, my Lord, what should we do? And then Elisha says, uh, don't be afraid and praise that the Lord opens his eyes to see um, the Basically, God's army mm-hmm. that that kind of overwhelm or makes the situation much different.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, open his, open his eyes, lords, that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's just the part that, that sticks with me. But I don't know why exactly.
0: Hmm. Yeah, we've Maybe, talked about that. Yeah, like, we when, have. When something grabs you, you don't know why that's calling for some sort of analysis to get to a more sophisticated kind of view. What's yeah. what's going on here? Why is this? What's my actually happening story? Yeah, underneath so, the surface? So like, why what, does
1: this image why, stick in my head? And, and when I, I, I almost visualize it. I can see. I like put myself in the shoes
0: mm-hmm.
1: of the servant, and where you know you're you're surrounded by an army, and all of a sudden you see there's another army on your side.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What that would what would it be like to be in those shoes? I just mm-hmm. can't. I can't. Captivated by that sure. moment, but it's it's hard, especially at first, the first time you go through it. It's like, what is what is it that's grabbing at me, and why why is that grabbing at
0: me? Mm-hmm. And do you think you know?
1: Well, I I think it's because it's a narrative, but I think there's <laughs> also I think that's also there's there's more happening that mm. that you can unpack. Um,
0: you know, I I was thinking how every biblical narrative, every biblical biblical text is making some kind of claim about reality, some kind of claim about the way things really are in this world in which we live. We live in the biblical world, right? Yeah. Same world where this happened. And so the claim on reality here might be, and of course, then the spirit is there, married to the word to help mm-hmm. us live in that real world as it is. And And so here I think the claim on reality is a pretty overt one, the reality that this world you see just isn't all there is, you know. And, and so you think about the different places you can stand in that story. You, you can stand in the place of the servant who doesn't see yeah. that there's more, you know. Um, so, I, you know, when you think about the whole called meta narrative, so that's the thing that the postmodern person doesn't think can exist. Yeah. Is there can be a true story that is the story of all the stories that actually eloquently and reliably captures the way things are. And in our biblical view, we have this meta narrative of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And within that meta narrative, there are each particular story. And I don't know, this one says that other world that is real, the world of God, I mean, whose side is God on here? He's on the side of his people. Yeah. And those that oppose him, I think built into the story is the claim that those who imp- oppose him, like the, is it Arameans in that story? I'll, um, have, to, I'll have to check, let me check real quick. Um, yes, that, Arameans. That they are truly in the wrong, you know, um, and the is in the right. And so part of the meta narrative I think, of the whole scripture is it's constantly showing a struggle. It's constantly showing a struggle between, well, in this case, what we see and what we can't see. We walk by faith and not by sight. And Eli- the servant's struggle to stand in his shoes and not see. And I think that's one of the
1: really powerful things about narrative in a general sense mm-hmm. is that it it has the ability to place you in the shoes of the people that you're hearing the story about mm-hmm. so even taking this story in light of like things that have happened in my life like I could be this servant at times where I don't I might be going through and maybe forget that there's an there's an army on my side as well. That God is mm-hmm. God is there even though I might not be able to see Him right here right now. But also at times where I've been in the place of Elisha, where I have a friend or someone else who's who's going through something, and I'm able to remind them, you know, you, you're not alone in that in that space.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it'd be like. Acknowledging that there are, in a biblical view, <clears throat> there are good stories and bad stories that are competing with each other. There, yeah. are, there are stories that accurately name reality and correspond to the way things are and stories that miss it. So it's just fascinating to think about walking in Elisha's shoes versus his servant. Yeah. Yeah.
1: For sure. Um, I think maybe we could start diving into the theoretical. Mm-hmm. Uh, side of this. So probably, would you say 30, 40 years ago, uh, communication scholarship took a, a, a turn towards the narrative side, mm-hmm. um, especially uh, with the theories of um, Walter Fisher. Mm-hmm. So he came up with uh, the narrative paradigm. I'm not sure if that's the, if he had an official name for his body of work, but I've Heard it called the narrative paradigm mm-hmm. and essentially saying that humans are are storytelling creatures, that we experience the world through a series of events and we communicate to each other in that way mm-hmm. specifically as if that's like hardwired mm-hmm. into the way that our, our brains are built. And I think he even goes so far as to, to say that that's the difference between us and, and animals is that we're able to, to tell stories to each other. That's what kind of, maybe that's a way to think about what separates us. I'm
0: not sure. I, I think he's saying it is, in his view, it is that defining to the human experience. Yeah. That we, you know, story is the most like life. As we said before, it comes mm-hmm. to you in a sequence of events. It has ambiguity built into it and, you know, sort of a, yeah. an always needing to be interpreted. Um, and, that, and again, Fisher would say there are true stories. There are good stories, bad stories. There are true stories and not, and so yeah. that's a way of talking about how how to navigate life. We rely entirely on God's story by inspiration. The one who sees all to the bottom of things um, narrates for us this this world. And you know, again, the meta narrative is God made the world; it was ruined, and God's great plan to send a savior. Yeah. And, and now his plan to draw us all into that story by his Holy Spirit. And so Fisher was a Christian. I think everything we've said so far, he just died this last year, you know, but everything we've said so far, I think he would be, be nodding his head. So,
1: yeah. And I think the, the it just gives us a powerful way to look, especially at scripture mm-hmm. is just a, a lens to view everything as part of like a narrative structure. Mm-hmm. And, and that goes back to the, well, how we introduced this episode was with that, that statistic, that 75% and then, you know, well, what are we excluding and why? How are we defining what a narrative is? Mm-hmm. And if you, if you look through the lens of, well, pretty much everything has a narrative element to it, especially the way that we communicate to each other. And then you extrapolate that to, well, how is God communicating his story to us? Mm-hmm. It, it has some very powerful implications, and may, maybe helps us to consider some things that we might not have considered beforehand.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it helps us to appreciate the the scriptures you know as you as we began, stories grab us and to think a little more deeply about why they grab us, how how it works. so yeah. I, I think that's Walter Fisher's main burden was was how stories are persuasive, how stories actually Carry within them um, hidden, or what you would call, good reasons to believe such and such, or to live in such and such way. Yeah. Um, I think it, you can respond to what I what I think about first with Walter Fisher is we, he calls it the rational world paradigm, which is the point of view that a lot of education is built around. It's that life is going to confront us with a s- constant series of sort of reasonal, reasonable, rational problems. And so all education is built around being able to confront those problems by by, you know, critical thinking skills, all those wonderful things. But Fisher is kind of saying that there's something deeper and more to the core of how people think, and it goes right to children not having to be taught how to reason rationally, but they they are sort of enculturated into uh, what he calls the narrative rationality, thinking in terms of story. And so I think what he guides us in, in a way, is how do we distinguish stories that persuade and those that don't? And I think you remember, his classic formulations are coherence and fidelity, right? Stories that yeah. ring true, yes. stories that hang together. Which you identify with. Them. Yeah. And this takes you right to the scriptural meta-narrative, too. Yeah. Is if there's ever a story that rings true, that hangs together in in Christ and God's plan to save us, if there's ever a story that has a consistency of characters, I mean, the human race in the biblical story is just, its that's quite a profile that does, you know, it sure does give me... Some twists and turns um, in there. Boy, it, as far as a, a robust understanding of people, I mean, it's there in a very coherent way throughout the scriptures. Um, but stories that then ring true. Um, so I, I think the value here is that it, it turns me to my Bible with even more of an awe and admiration than I'd had before it. And, and it tells me to take a story from the Bible and not simply excavate the meaning, you know, like the parable of the prodigal son, not to just ex- excavate the meaning and then to kind of discard the stories. if There wasn't actually a very good reason to communicate in just the way that he does. There's a reason for the story yeah. in terms of just even who we actually are as communicators.
1: Yeah. And so maybe it'd be helpful to maybe go over Elisha at Dothan with that same same lens then. And that would help, for example, me understand more about why that story is so gripping to me. So I go through and I can think of actually a very specific time where I saw a parallel to this story in my life where I had a friend who didn't see or wasn't considering that there's a, you know, an army on your side as well. You're not just surrounded by people that are trying to hurt you. Like there are people who care about you as well. And it's not just people here that are living on earth. There's like, there's a God that cares about you like that too. And so going back and hearing this story and being able to, to relate to it, identify with it in that way, like that might be one reason why, why it grips me. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not just a, it's not just that it's important that the servant's eyes were opened and they saw that the Lord was there. It, there's more to it than that, that understanding it through a narrative paradigm right. really brings <clears throat> to the
0: table. Right. Absolutely. I, You know, that story does have kind of a punchline to it. And the punchline, I think, so to speak, would be those who are with us are more than those who are against us, right? And you, yeah. you could have just told us that, you know, and, yeah. and left it at that. But by putting this human face on the story and by... Boy, by causing us to identify, you know, to share human stuff with that servant before his eyes are opened, um, and and to sort of feel for a moment the difficulty of that reality, living with things I can't see. Um, yeah. So go ahead. John. That kind of
1: ad- identification actually reminds me of um, C.S. Lewis, and especially when he talks about friendship. I think, well, something along the lines of, well, you too. I thought I was the only one. Or you, just, you have a common. There's something in common sure. between you that you didn't have before, and mm-hmm. being able to identify with not only your friends now, but also the people that you see in in Scripture.
0: Absolutely, and and recognizing a
1: very powerful
0: tie there. Yeah, and recognizing then that um, <clears throat> the ultimate sharing of human things. Is to share faith in Christ, and mm-hmm. so when I turn to the New Testament now, it's sort of on the basis of the story at Dothan, it's not like we have to argue that there's somehow a type of Christ going on or anything like that. This is we can just simply say that there is a meta narrative, a grand story that holds it all together coherently, and and we can just reflect on the story. I was thinking of the story of um, um, Nathaniel being brought to Jesus, and, yeah, you know, and. And treats Jesus with a certain measure of contempt. You know, what good can come from Nazareth? And yeah. Jesus just says, Hey, I thought I saw you under the fig tree. And and somehow this brings out a full confession in Nathaniel. You are the Christ, the Son of God, he even says, based on just, Hey Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. And it goes to the the wonderful openness of these stories as you try to unpack. And this is speculative maybe in a way, but I mean, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel, and Jesus calls Nazareth the true Israelite, which would be to me someone waiting for Messiah. So, could it even have been? Nathaniel is praying for Messiah in the place of prayer, that's traditional, and Jesus just says, "Hey, <laughs> I saw you there." Yeah. You know, and so and somehow Nathaniel gets to that full confession, and then Jesus talks about, "You think that's something? <laughs> You're going to see something far greater than that," and, it, and he talks then about angels going up and down on the Son of Man, which is, wow, talk about an image to linger over that Jesus is calling himself the the ladder or the ziggurat or something between earth and heaven. The bridge, perhaps. But, But that same coherent view is that the things you cannot see are the things that are more real than what you can see. And the coherent centers of the story is Christ drawing us into his, you yeah. know. So
1: it all leads it all points that direction.
0: It absolutely does. Yeah. And so again, I just for me it just is increasing the standing back in awe of the word of God. When you just begin to explore in a careful way, you know, what's happening in the surface here. We can't peer behind the curtain and even speak about how the spirit does his work through the word that he marries himself to, but you can see on the surface there even there's a genius and a you know, and a brilliance and a yeah. sophistication that ought to be reckoned with, yeah. Yeah,
1: because without a narrative understanding of or a lens that you're looking through, you wouldn't really think to tie those things together unless there was a direct direct cor- mm-hmm. connection or reference. Sure. But being able to kind of open up what you can connect things to is really, really powerful. I think one of the... I remember you told me once about an idea um, of kind of an example of how um, the power of narrative can be used specifically through scripture, but you, you postulated or hypothesized with me. It was like, imagine you have a friend or I have a friend and I can tell you everything about this person, right? I can tell you how tall they are, the color of their hair, color of their eyes, what kind of food they like. And you just have... Pretend there's an exhaustive list, right? You're just Everything you could possibly know about this person. And then consider what would happen if you actually met them and how much more you would know about who they are having, like, have met them face-to-face. Mm-hmm. And so you, you consider that difference. And then, sure, then you there's, said... There's,
0: mi- excuse me, what you can kind of communicate directly, easily in words versus what... You're going to struggle to put into words, yeah. which was the experience you're experiencing this that. this person. Yeah. yeah. Keep going.
1: Yeah. So, um, you're, I'm not sure if this was, you You said it was sort of speculative. Um, but it's also, I think consider now hearing instead of just facts about this person, you also hear like a story or some sort of like, you know, a happening that you had together and, and the theory was that this can help bridge that, the difference more so than just knowing about the person. It helps you, it helps you understand more about who this person is.
0: Right. And, 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 then, and it
1: might not be as, as powerful as a face-to-face experience with them, but it's also more than just knowing about them.
0: Sure. You know, if we're speculating a little bit, it it's really comes from that place of, Fascination, why I communicate this way, speaking about what's in the Word of God? And so, the example would be Moses before the burning bush. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that we weren't there to meet the pre incarnate Christ speaking from the flame, we weren't there, we didn't have the full sensory experience or any of the sensory experience. All we have is Moses on his knees. <laughs> he covers his face when he hears the words, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's when he covers his face. Um, feeling the infinite difference between himself and the one who speaks to him. And it's just its just a crazy sort of access, by identifying with Moses, by empathizing with him, by yeah. having some sense of what it would be to be put on your knees before a vision like that. And along with that is just the whole, I keep saying, I'm overusing the word genius, but the, the genius of how these Old Testament characters are drawn, it, it, it can just seem so... Like stick figures, kind of yeah. sparse on the surface, but but they become very real to us through the through the Old Testament narrative, historical narrative style. So anyway, it's, yeah. it's just a certain kind of access to to while well, Christ in the burning bush, as we find ourselves trembling beside Moses, yeah, and that requires lingering in the story and not yeah, you no, know, not yeah. rushing through it. But so yeah, it's speculative maybe, yeah. but what's not speculative is that we can. We're told for a reason about the overwhelming awe that came over Moses, not just at the sight, but at the name. And um, at least I can say, is if I was a better man, I would, I'd be in that same place, right. you know, on my knees, take my sandals off. Yeah,
1: I think that's a an important thing that viewing scripture, especially through this lens, is that we we sort of have this assumption, and I think rightfully so, that we approach scripture then with the thought that it's more than just the things that happen that are important. It's the way that they're written are important too. the way that he chooses Mm -hmm. narrative over. I don't know what else you would, I guess we kind of include everything inside that, but how the way that he tells these stories to us is not insignificant. The things that we might not think are important, maybe they're there for a reason too. Mm
0: -hmm. And that's you know that's really important to be said. A few things. First of all, using the word story, we you know people will not maybe know that you're talking about true stories, yeah, divinely inspired stories of what actually happened. And just the word story itself, the more you repeat it, can help have people lose track of that. You know. Um, but the other piece is that well, how else could God have communicated? He could have communicated with propositions. You know, it could have been. Statements, factual statements, and what we should be very careful to say is that we love propositional truth. We're, we're not, we're not among those that would say, "Let's turn to the story and let's just leave behind sort of a doctrinal, systematic approach to what's being conveyed." No, no, no. Uh, yeah. This is Luther before Erasmus and the bondage of the will, just saying Christians love assertions. We live off simple, true, factual statements of who God is and. And what he's done for Christ. So this is not, but this isn't either some kind of false dichotomy. Is one yeah. or the other? It's just, it's not wrong to notice God's preferred style. Mm-hmm. You know that the narrative—it's it, additive in value. It, well said. Exactly yeah. what it is. It's additive in value.
1: Um, so yeah, there. There's more than just the
0: the doctrinal truths that we can take off yeah. off of the page. There's a concreteness and a particularity and it taking all this into life. Mm-hmm. And as we said before, watching the whole story of people struggling, um, mm-hmm. just the sinner saint struggle is on display in every page of scripture, basically. And it's you some, could just tell us about that, but it, it's useful yeah. to have the human face on it. And I
1: think some of the, it might be almost scary to, it, it's ambiguous Oftentimes, it doesn't. It doesn't answer the questions that maybe a doctrinal proposition offers mm-hmm. us. There, there is ambiguity to it. Um, there's a there's, there's a certain uncertainty or an openness, a mystery stories, to, yeah. to to so especially some stories that right. we can't answer the questions there.
0: And and just like life meets us this way too, with an ambiguity. That is constantly needing, needing interpretation, and for that we turn, you know, only to Scripture alone and and the total body of truth revealed in the Word of God. But but to realize that there are stories themselves in the Bible that have that openness to them that mm-hmm. you know it isn't postmodern. All bets are off as far as what this thing even means. It means we we're going to have to linger in that story. And I remember reading not long ago with a colleague reading the Hebrew text of. Uh, and I should have reviewed this because I'm not going to get the details right. But <laughs> but the story of, of Eli, you know, falling backwards off his chair when he hears that the ark has been captured and so on. And I just grew up thinking that whole story is is an indictment on Eli being terrible to add because his because his two sons were so awful in relation yeah. to the Lord. And I remember just assuming that was the point of the story. And as we went through it, you know, in the slow care of doing the Hebrew translation. That, that isn't exactly what that story is is conveying. If the, Eli has a fault; he does, but he doesn't put the accent there. And so the point is that here's a story that has a certain openness to it, as far as okay, um, which particular aspect of total revealed truth is put on display here. But there's a reason to go back to that, um, as the best stories again and again. I you know I've always said stories are like conversations. I'm sorry, stories are like art in that they the best ones create the conversation.
1: Yeah. You know. And that's a really powerful thing about narrative, I think, in our society especially, is that it can help generate discourse that Mm -hmm. maybe the the story doesn't answer the problem, but it at least gives you the, like, a segue into having that kind of
0: conversation, which you might not think to have otherwise. So, Like, again, the prodigal son, there's no meaning that's really up for grabs there. Yeah. That the meaning is is uh unmistakable. The the claim on reality that Jesus is making me tell in the story is is about the waiting father, the father's love for his sons and and this the the meaning has to do with both kinds of sins, the yeah. prodigal sin that is just wasting his life on Things with no value, and the older brother sin, which is a self righteousness, Mm -hmm. and that misses the party, so to speak, that that creates it. So we're not saying any meaning is really up for grabs. It's just why are there still being books written about that story? Mm -hmm. Why why are we still plumbing the depths of the of the claim that this is who God is? This is who He is, putting that ring on the prodigal's finger. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so it's in the well is deep. Yeah, the well is deep without. Again, compromising for a second, I thought that propositional truth, too, is really a wonder. Yeah. Um, It's how we survive, you know, in terms of the life of faith, is Mm -hmm. having clear propositions such as that you're a child of God by faith in Jesus, right? Yeah. So,
1: I mean, I think we even mentioned this story in regards to openness. In the last episode was that um, the end of the book of Jonah— Mm. It kind of leaves you hanging a little bit, but there's no mistake as to you know there are some very clear messages that 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 book in as a whole brings to the table you know who's who are we to judge other other um other people mm-hmm. that's that's God's work mm-hmm. that is what that's what he does and if we we kind can, we can't take his place in that, but there's also Im- important but, uh, open parts of that book that are a little bit more ambiguous mm. that there's a little bit more to, to dive into is you know, what are the, why is it important that all of the, well, the way that it's said at the, at the very end, it kind of right. leaves you is like an open question. And Jonah's the one that wrote it too. So.
0: Right. So did, did the sailors believe Did they have true faith in Yahweh? as they cast Jonah overboard, you're going to find Lutheran fathers that are just going to be on both sides of that question. Mm-hmm. And So again, it's like at one point in my life I would have thought, boy, that's not the best storytelling that leaves that question in my mind. But then more and more I think, this is the best storytelling right. here, is that, that there's, a rock, there's a bedrock of truth, unmistakable, but there's also something profoundly entangling about the story to bring me back again and again. And again and, and you know, like Luther truly, truly inhabited the Old Testament world. He just lived in that world and and why did he? <clears throat> because there's always more there for him, I would say is part yeah. of the answer. And more and more does he see the beauty is deeper in, in the Old Testament, so to speak, the beauty of being the way all its Old Testament lines are gonna meet in Jesus who mm-hmm. casts his life backwards across all of it in some way. Um so God's chosen way to communicate, a preferred style. Um, it's how he re- how he reveals himself to mm-hmm. us. Yeah, and I think that's just his condescension because this is what we understand. Yeah, we understand stories without being even told how they work. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, the other one that that comes to my mind is uh, Elijah and the in the mountains and how God reveals Himself to Elijah there. It's the the still small voice
0: instead of the things that we thought it was before. Mm -hmm. There's always then, or not always, but you can be looking for in biblical narrative, things like that that are almost subversive in a way. Mm -hmm. That story is telling you where you look for God, where you look for greatness, what what lights your eyes up as far as, oh, that's glorious, that's where God is. You can be entirely wrong about that if you thought it was the... You know the windstorm or whatever the earthquake, the fire. No, no, it's a little voice, a very quiet voice. Um, And then, and then, and you
1: contrast that with like something like Job, where it's not a still small voice. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you to question me? He says. Oh, sure, the storm. Yeah, the the book. The storm. Yeah. That's probably not a direct connection, but it's just interesting to see that. I mean, the way that he reveals himself to
0: us is not. Always the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating, endlessly fascinating. Yeah. So more to say, John, than about communication being narrative. I mean, you mentioned C.S. Lewis before. There are certainly yeah. other scholars that are have taken this narrative turn, and not not just communication scholars, really. It's it's much a lot of bigger than that. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I don't know if you were directly pointing <laughs> me to something <laughs> there, but I don't, um, you know.
0: I don't know. I teaching communication at the college level is it's just every passing year. Yeah. There's just more and more that you see. You know, I, I think about for example, you hear the tragic story of a kid that gets a B in biology and wants to hurt himself over this grade he wasn't hoping for, you know. And on one level you say, Well this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You know, and but what the narrative paradigm would, would suggest is that, you know, it may not make sense, but there's a story that that boy tells himself. And within that story, it does make sense, a certain kind of sense. And it could be the story of his big brothers and what they accomplished. It could be the story of a thing his dad said. You know, who knows what the story is, but the idea is that I would not understand that kid until I hear that story, you know, which is really important to interpersonal conflict too. We don't understand until we know what is this. What is the version of events that is yeah. real to this person that I don't know? Um, but then the notion that a story can be can be retold. you know So if how you feel makes sense within the story, then there's a way to tell our own stories that have Christ brought into the frame in, in a far more deliberate way, the story you. Yeah. Know, of, of how we struggle, but God meets us in the struggle and so on. Mm-hmm. So it's just an application of the, you know, I don't know what I was reaching for when I yeah posed that. But just well, I mean,
1: I can think of a, a couple places just from my grad school experience where the narrative paradigm was put in a situation or brought forth in a situation where I wouldn't have naturally thought to put it. For example, it, it was, um, there's actually a sophisticated narrative paradigm for judging argumentation, mm. for judging debate. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, no new information here, but when two people present an argument, how that argument fits into maybe a broader narrative or how that story can be relatable to the people who are, are, are judging you or to other people who might have judged you depending on the circumstances inside the, the argument that that's a way to um, even give like feedback on how well your argument is presented is Mm -hmm. how well it can connect to a grander narrative. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be used in, I mean, that can be used in good ways. And I think oftentimes unknowingly is used.
0: Mm, Definitely. And
1: especially in today's society is like, how much more compelling of an argument can you make when you can connect it to something that you Feel very related to, right? Versus presenting a a very sophisticated argument that has no such connection, mm-hmm. and and that goes to the rhetorical nature of or persuasive nature of of narrative in general. Is it just? It gives us a way to to hold on to things and a way to understand them because that is, as Fisher said, the way that we process the world around us.
0: I was thinking that same thing. Um. The narrative turn has been so complete in our culture that isn't this all we hear in the news nowadays that, well, that's the White House narrative, you know, mm-hmm. And so it, it is about conflicting stories that are all trying to make a claim yeah. on, on the way things really are, and um, just the language itself of that's the narrative you know that we're hearing now is tells you how far-reaching this is. I, um, yeah, I'm advising a senior thesis right now, and it's really. It's really a cool thing that the student happens to be a nephew of mine is, is uh, studying, where in the Psalms does King David tell a part of his own story? Even though it's poetry, it's also there's also stories there, right? And and they they uh, typically begin in uh, what Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, would call disorientation. David is disoriented. He sees the wicked saying whatever they want to say about God, and nothing—nothing nothing happens to them. You yeah. <laughs> know, nothing, and he's disoriented. and And these psalms all resolve in a reorientation to what God sees and how God would tell this story, so to speak. God—God God, again, the only one who can properly name reality as it is. And then the psalms all end in a reorientation of the of the psalmist. And of course, he does that by inspiration. This is the spirit giving him this gift, but it, it, it certainly is there to instruct us as well, about our own lives. Of well, like Elisha's servant, he's disoriented. He sees the enemies that surround, him yeah. and uh, why should I be in this city of Dothan with enemies? I'm—I'm I'm the yeah. prophet's servant. You know? Right. Very disorienting. But then, then God comes in with the revelation of truth from the outside, and so, um, what my nephew's been writing about is. Largely part part of the theory is how identity itself, um, the who am I question itself can be captured, not just in, well, I'm a child of God, but there's also a story there that um, goes right to the core of, yeah, as I say, identity. That, uh, that's an
1: interesting take on the Psalms, the disorientation. I've never I I haven't heard of that before but it reminds me of uh very much of Ecclesiastes where like the whole book is you know where is the meaning in life here everything's meaningless mm-hmm. there's 12 chapters of saying how you can go to the ends of the earth pursuing all of these things and accomplish them and still not find what you're looking for and then at the very end it's just fear the lord and keep his
0: commandments sure makes me wonder john you know when <laughs> So if seventy-five percent of the Bible is narrative, did we include Ecclesiastes in there? <laughs> we, we might not have. We might have said, yeah. no, this is wisdom literature. Yeah. Um, but oh my goodness, but talk about Proverbs too. Sure. Well, presuming Solomon is the author, yeah. then the story is of a man who who every path there is toward meaning, he took it and found in in achieving the end, he found that it just wasn't it wasn't anything but chasing the wind, you know. So um, There's still something left to be had. Mm-hmm. Yep. You said proverbs what was your take Oh, uh, just. I mean,
1: if you look at it on like a like a superficial or like surface level, it's just little wise sayings mm-hmm. about how to go through your life. But you know, if they if they really are truisms about you know this is this is a good way to go through. This is good advice for you. Mm-hmm. How is that not tied into what the narrative that God has planned for your
0: life? Sure, and and I was just trying to think with you. How many times does the book offer the frame of a father telling a son? It puts you in a teaching situation. My wisdom, and right there, right there is you know the relational piece of father guiding his son through how to navigate this world. Yeah, I don't think it's. I think it's very hard to look through
1: a relationship, any kind of relationship, without having some sort of narrative frame involved. There, mm-hmm. so it's all—it's always implied underneath the surface. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I think that was the same kind of thing that drove Fisher's ideas: is that it, you can't get away from it. You can't—you can't escape it. Mm-hmm. There always exists some like pre-done sequence of events when you Mm -hmm. come to any situation Mm
0: -hmm. and so maybe
1: you can take you can take some things in isolation and maybe you can quantify them and take some other meaning out of it but it's it's really hard to completely alienate or divorce yourself from from a narrative in general Mm -hmm. it's and again i don't know what the motive would be to do that other than if you were opposed to a narrative right. paradigm in the first place, or if right. you are trying to discredit it for some reason, but it's and I and it's just additive, right? It just it gives you more understanding. That's if exactly you're if you're able is. if you're able to look through the lens of narrative, you might pick up things that you might have missed otherwise. Oh, and that's that it. That's here. exactly that's the, that's the whole point is that there is value to looking at it through that lens, and it's not saying anything judgment-wise about a different way or a different lens that you might look through it, but just that, you know, consider this too.
0: I was, I was sitting here as you were talking, asking myself, I was trying to remember how you said that additive thing because I wanted to go yeah. back to that too. Um, just one thing in the last couple of years of engaging with the Old Testament, you know, teaching it to future pastors is that we, we don't want at all to dismiss the notion Again, a propositional truth. So you study a story, and you ask, what does it teach? You study a story, you ask, what does it teach? And so we're we're as carefully as we can extracting what is the doctrine that this either conveys or connects to, whatever that might be, the attributes of God or something about repentance or who knows. Yeah. But what I've experienced more and more is conversations that kind of, in a classroom, that kind of peter out at a certain point. You've been asking in a very good and careful way, what does it teach? But I've discovered how that same conversation can kind of restart again when you ask, "Okay, now what does it it do to you? And what I like about that is that if there's ever a time when we might find ourselves falling into an overly intellectual approach, like all there is to do is engage my mind in extrapolating or extracting doctrine, then there can be, I think, sometimes a fuller, more holistic engagement when you say, What does it yeah. do to you to see the servant Elijah in and the angst he feels because he doesn't see and and it can just be a whole another kind of conversation about um just across all the all the contours of mind and heart that Yeah. That um you involved with and identifying with characters, and yeah. and so on. I'm not expressing that very well. But yeah,
1: well, it's what narrative brings to the table. I think so that mm-hmm. that you might not get from a strictly excavating doctrine out of out of scripture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah, it, I don't know if I have anything else to say yeah, about this, specifically yeah. about how how to. About how how it can add value to our understanding, but I, I think maybe some of the the hesitancy might be that, I and mean, if you take that too far, it can turn to allegory rather quickly, where you like you start making connections where you know it's not. If you if you there's nothing wrong with relating to a certain part of scripture, but then once you start making those things the propositional truth, then it's like you've taken a story maybe trying to say too much with it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, there's it's, a good. It's not. It's not one or the other. It's just. Uh, it's a different way to, not only understand what's happening there, but to uh, you know make it real, in your life. Sure, so, I think
0: that's well said. It's it's very true to say that, most of the mischief that happens theologically in the world, it does happen to typically start in the Old Testament. Yeah, does you know, people spin their theories and, you know, we you and I both want to be comfortably situate within a biblical, conservative, yeah. historical, hermeneutic, and,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and kind of keep reaffirming and reaffir- reaffirming. So I could understand, too, a person being a little bit nervous about the approach. But I think all we're really saying, this was my dissertation, was just maybe the nervousness is if we, if we haven't always asked the question this way. But just in love for the Bible, in, in turning us toward the Bible, just asking, why in the world communicate this way? And just sort of enjoying the full range of the menu of identification and story and image and and genealogy and apocalyptic, you know, images like plugged into the wall and lighting up these crazy yeah. stuff. Why do it this way? And it it is something about how our problem isn't just an information problem. We love the proposition. That's exactly really what like I was going to say. Yeah. But it also is our problem is how to live the smallest part of the truth or take it up into our lives. And I think that's one way to get at the value of asking the question. Yeah. Why communicate this way?
1: It's like, it's not like there's an information that's not full that we're missing. Right. When you come to the, like doctrinally there's nothing that we're trying to like add to it. It's just, well, I, I don't, even, I don't know even know if that's like, the right, to say to, right
0: way to say if it. Have I said this but, before? I don't even really like calling it information because that even that already yeah, it's a bit ambiguous. So but. faith is defined as having the information, <laughs> what God did to save us, and then not just having it, but then assenting to it, saying in our minds by the Spirit, it is true. And then, and then the last part is actually trusting it by the Spirit. It's true for me, and so we don't mean to even speaking those terms necessarily, but just there's more to, there's more to knowing the facts that the devil himself knows. There's also by the spirit, by his edification, taking this up into our lives.
1: I like, and I like the way I like that phrase because, um, it's, it's not that there's a lack of, of doctrine per se, but it's, Applied to how how we go like that. Well, that's the value of adding narrative too, is because um, that's kind of what grounds it. Especially when you're talking about scripture, is Mm -hmm. that it gives you the tools that some tools that you can use to make this a very real thing in your life. Instead of just something that you can talk and know about, Mm -hmm. it's something that you can live.
0: Yeah, I think that. If the truth of scripture is there are lots of ways to summarize it, but that God God loves and welcomes sinners for Jesus' sake. You can just put it like that. Yeah. God loves and welcomes sinners for Jesus' sake. The the way the way the story hidden in hidden hidden in disguise in the epistles, for example, again, the way the story brings me into contact with that as I as I get to overhear, so to speak, the apostle discussing this matter with the people in Corinth, you know. It just it gives it a concreteness and a particularity, and the difference this simple message makes to real people, and again, how they struggle with it, how they mm-hmm. don't get it in every way, not yeah. right away. And so, I just we're just saying there is a what the Spirit did in giving us the Bible is is just fall on the floor, amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it just really is. So where does it leave us, John? I mean, there's with narrative. Again, there's so much to to unpack.
1: I don't know. Do you want to go through, like, are there any other stories and from scripture that you think specifically? I'm trying to think of one where unpacking it with a narrative mindset, it's clear you can kind of see where it helps bridge that gap between maybe less of like a transactional, here's some, like, here's a, like, this happened. It's not just... Historical, but also you can kind of see how that, how taking that up mm. into your life changes, and maybe like one that we uh, mentioned Psalms before, but looking at uh, the Psalm, is it twenty-two? Of it, kind of depicts Christ on the cross. Sure, my God, my God, yeah, why have you forsaken? Yeah, me? yeah. and word, so I'm not a man, yeah, yeah, yeah. so. Who's who's saying this? You know, is it is it's Christ? It's David? We can pray this. The there's just so many different ways that that I think the narrative lens can can add to, but maybe that's not the best one either. I'm just kind of going off the top of my head. Yeah, but, no,
0: yeah. I, I'd want to study study that. I'd want to think that through a little yeah. bit. It's obviously directly pointing to Jesus on the cross, which yeah. is a profound mystery how David can have that experience of described his hands and feet being pierced. At, uh, yeah. I mean, wow that that goes to apologetics. Yeah, what do you make of that? The story within that psalm. Um, so, what story comes to mind? I, I was so this is random, but what jumped into my head when you asked the question was uh, James and John going to Jesus. So, so no, before that, arguments among the disciples: who will cool be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, and don't. Don't they have their mom go to Jesus and ask yeah, him? they ask
1: him. Hey, Mom, can you can you
0: just be asking for us? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Mom. Yeah, really be appreciate it. on your that. right and left. Yeah, and the answer Jesus gives, um, can you drink the cup I drink? So it isn't no, it's can you drink the cup that I drink? And there's an image that has, you know, a thousand years of traction behind it, of course. Yeah. You know, Psalm 16, Psalm 23. But... If I interpret your question as just what stories do you connect with, I connect with that one as I think about maybe a very common struggle of comparing our gifts, especially within a church context, comparing our gifts to the gifts of others. And you can find yourself, you know, foolishly envying what other people have and that you don't have, and what's my place here, and so on. And I think about the most gifted people I've known in the church. And their life has not been easy, <laughs> to put yeah. it that way. There's a cup there to drink. With with those great extraordinary gifts comes comes suffering. Frankly, and Jesus isn't saying no, but he's saying, do you know what it would mean to be at my left and my right in the kingdom? That means, oh my goodness, you have drunk a cup that is not the one I drank for you. That was the wrath of God, but you yeah. had a cup too. And so, the story. Maybe this came up last time. I don't remember. If, Peter having a question about what would happen to John, he asked the resurrected Lord what would happen to John, and yeah. Jesus essentially says that's between me and John. You follow me. You yeah. Know? And so um, I haven't unpacked that story from a narrative point of view, but I bet we could as far yeah. as there... and I,
1: I wonder if we're talking about like a larger narrative in Scripture, just the number of times that people come to God with bold requests. I think... I'm trying to remember. I think there was a Bible study I was part of last week that we were talking about um, Jacob wrestling with God and not letting him go mm-hmm. until he had been blessed. And I just, I mean, I can't put myself, <laughs> imagine what, what it would take for me to pray in that way. Hmm. Yeah. And I, that's an interest. It just, no, it like, is wonderful. It, what it, I
0: love about that is... It,
1: it, Entangles me, so yeah, me too. And I and I can't exactly delineate what it is about it that is it. Maybe it's me trying to put myself in those shoes. Like, what would it take for me to do some or to pray in that way, or to be in a relationship with God in that way?
0: What is the claim on reality being made when you have God showing up in human form and then allowing, through a hard night of struggle, allowing Himself to be bested by one of His creatures? (laughs) You know, to yeah. the point of saying, let me go, and I won't let you go. I won't let you go till you bless me. The claim, you know, he wrestles with God, and beneath the wrestling with God is this core conviction given by the Spirit that um, you will bless me. Yeah. <laughs> you are here to bless me. And I remember one of our, one of our sort of church fathers, a controversial figure, but J.P. Kaler has this wonderful quote that, Uses that story, and I don't think it's allegory, so don't be nervous about that. <laughs> but I'm at ease now. So. <laughs> you are at ease. But he, he's he's making a prescription for the church, what the church needs most right now, and his his line is simply um, to become ever more deeply absorbed in the gospel, not letting go till it blesses. And just using that one line, not letting go of the gospel till it blesses us, and whether he, whether he has in mind the day of my Christian death where. The whole mystery and beauty of the gospel just explodes, you know, and reveals itself. But, but it's a way of talking about the question we're asking: why, why communicate this way in the Bible? I think it is helping us become ever more deeply absorbed in the whole scope, grand story of what God did to save us all. It's helping us to be yeah. deeply absorbed.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think um, just that. Like we, we can hold God to his promises is mm-hmm. another another angle that I just thought of to to approach that with. I don't know if that means I'd, you know, John's in the red corner, God's in the blue corner, and we <laughs> go at it. But I also, there's a certain level of boldness or um, not animosity, but it's a, an, aggressive, an aggressive thing to ask. But he allows it to happen, and he...
0: So the, we hold these. Yeah. so these themes captured in biblical narrative, these um, claims on reality, again, they, they, they just really stand up, and you could find this as one of the major themes of Luther and the Reformation, and that it's the notion that there has to be struggle. I will, I will not come to understand the righteousness of Christ in a way that changes everything for me, except that I have struggled to have a righteousness of my own, and failed. And there's something in God's economy that those who know Him best will be those who have had that time by the Jabbok River. You know, mm-hmm. um, Ultimately, though, what sustains us is a gospel sense. I will not let you go till you bless me. Um, I, and I just have a sense that really pleased him when he said that there. That I think that really yeah. pleased him. Um, and then he touches his. I'm just letting yeah. the story and, come back to mind. He touches yeah, his he, hip, and, and never doesn't limp again. Jacob will, <laughs> will carry that with him the rest of his life. That something in there about being weak and strong at the same time, you know. Oh, that's a really powerful part of the New Testament too. I
1: mm-hmm. think um, that takes see. that takes me back to our cross country days. Okay, go. But um, ain't no thing, coach.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I got to tell the story. Oh,
1: okay. To... So see, and this is a story that you lived, but I was told about, so we'll see. So, uh, as I understand it, there was a, a difficult, a difficult workout. Oh, I was was it was
0: hurting. Intervals. I was hurting them oh, bad. John, hurting them we bad. in Flandreau state park. Yeah. So was it intervals or something? It was intervals at the yeah. length of a mile with a very um, short recovery time between race, mile, repeats race pace, like mile
1: repeats, probably 45 seconds over yeah.
0: the trails, yeah. over the
1: trails. Yeah. And so. You were giving some encouragements to the athletes passing by, and um, but it's a difficult workout. It's a an uphill battle, and I I, I can't remember what did you say something that specifically that initiated well, it. But um,
0: yeah, see, I'm, I'm a tender guy, as you know, John, <laughs> and I'm out on the trail, you know, on the other end of this mile, and uh, a young runner named Phil was lined up to, waiting for me to say go, and it. You know, it's kind of like the scene from that hockey movie where, again, uh, again, again, yeah, again yeah. you know. A miracle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So here I am, the guy doing that, blowing the whistle, saying, again, give me another mile, you know. And I I almost feel bad, and feel, Phil's on the line. I can tell if I feel bad, and I'm saying, Phil, you know, I know this hurts and stuff. And he just stops me and says, Coach, ain't no thing. <laughs> and this, the smile on his face, I just have always thought, this is... This is courage, right there—that yeah. moment where he says, "Ain't no thing, Coach." I got another one. Bring it. In me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> one more. <laughs> and um, boy, since we're being communication nerds, I mean, that story is an example of a theory. Um, what's it called? Symbolic convergence, which is that one way—one way to measure whether the groups have formed is whether they have stories like that. Stories that would make no sense to anybody outside the group. If I say yeah. "ain't no thing" to anybody, they're gonna what are you yeah. talking about? Ain't no thing. But this group knows what that means.
1: Is that the same theory about our related to like a, a community? Is it sure. sim- I guess you could probably say it's sort similar of. for sure. But, sort of, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Group identity.
0: And or, so yeah. extrapolate to the community that is the church. Just one way to look through that lens at the com- community of the church is to unpack to the stories. That we yeah. all share, in which we find ourselves and find our meaning, and I think that's given an by God. interesting. I remember, if you think about the the Christian church,
1: we all have that faith in common, but it's hard for us to share that with someone who's not inside that with us or experiencing that mm-hmm. with us. Like my my relationship to the cross is not the same as someone who does not have faith, right? And so it's, and that that's what makes it sometimes difficult, or oftentimes difficult to communicate, is I can't use, I can't exactly tell you exactly what it's like, unless you're actually there, like, Mm -hmm. unless you can get a grasp of that yourself, Mm -hmm. so.
0: That's so true, and what rescues us, of course, from the pessimism of that moment is that it isn't our job to convince anybody, our job is to tell the story. That is, speak the word of God. And, yeah. But you're right. It it's difficult. It's such a different thing from the inside versus the outside. Yeah. And um, to know the joy of community, all those that don't just know the stories, but all those that have the Spirit's power to, yeah, to believe them, and all these are these stories are my stories. They are.
1: Yeah. They,
0: they implicate me personally, and they restore me to my place in God's heart as well. Yeah. Um, For sure. I think going back to I
1: think what got us on this little side path was um, the we were talking about cross country and how um, that it was a, it was helpful for me as a way to understand struggle especially as it's presented in the in the New Testament you know Paul talking about uh, struggle or suffering how our present suffering is not comparing with not worth comparing to the joy that will be revealed in us. I mean, you can make that like, you know, in the race, it's going to be difficult, but then you get to the finish line, but it's, I mean, there's something more to it than that too, because we, you know, get back and you keep running again. And it even uses that, um, in the new Testament as an analogy, the, you know, run the race that's marked Mm -hmm. out for you. Races aren't not easy, but Mm -hmm. so it is a, you know, suffering is a, is a part of faith.
0: Right. And, it's, and so, if you,
1: not that it should be dwelt on, but it's also not able to be
0: ignored. Right. And so, you, yeah, I don't know if this follows up well in what you're saying. I, I think it does. So imagine trying to navigate this world without knowing <clears throat> the full grand metanarrative. You yeah. don't know what came before you. You don't know how your identity began before you were born, you know, being loved by God before the creation of the world. And especially... As far as the rationality, you don't know how the thing ends. Yeah, you know, and the best stories have have an ending that resolves all the pain and difficulty that led to it, and the ending of the ending of the story, you know, is beyond our imagination. What God has prepared for us, um, what Jesus has gone to prepare for us. So, it's just isn't it a way of talking about so many things that are essential yeah. to our life of faith? Is to to see the narrative cast. Yeah. Um,
1: and then, so maybe that's a maybe that's a good way to I think we'll continue talking about this in the next episode, but maybe that's okay. a good way to wrap it up by um maybe that's an example of how you know the the doctrinal statement about you know there is joy after the suffering can be taken up into your life um, and in, how the narrative understanding of that can maybe help you help orient you along that path. Mm-hmm. And give you more more signposts or more things to hold on to, more things to relate to as you as you take that up into your life mm-hmm. as you said. So
0: God has revealed to us the story that we are in.
1: Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So All right, well, Check we will, please. right? Yeah, Check we'll
1: please. we will continue <laughs> for sure with this topic um in the next episode, um, um, but until then, thank you very much for listening. This has been where two or three.